following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. One of the dangers of this passage, I mean, there's lots of dangers. It's very controversial. Uh, a lot of people just skip Romans chapter 9. <laughs> but, you know, it's in there. And we don't want to just cut out the parts of Scripture we don't understand or have a hard time with. And one of, one of the difficulties of this passage is it's very easy to take pieces of it very much out of context and draw out meaning without really understanding the whole picture of what Paul's trying to say. Uh, and so I want to start, as we look, we're going to focus today on, on verses 14 through 29. But as we look at these difficult verses, it's really important to understand Paul's overall argument that he's making here and understand and keep in context what he's talking about, right? Um, so what I want to do is we'll kind of read and, and walk through it quickly first uh, and, and, and highlight what Paul's argument is here. And then we'll go back through it and touch on a couple of things that have to do with our own uh, application or understanding of it in our own day and time. Paul wrote this letter to the Ro- church in Rome, uh, which was originally mostly Jews, right? Jewish converts, were the first ones to receive the gospel in Rome. So the early church in Rome would have been made up largely of Jewish people. But about the time of Nero, Nero in one of his crazy tirades, which he had often, uh, kicked all the Jews out of Rome, and so it left the church. Imagine, you know, if, if uh, in, imagine our church, if we said all the white people have to leave, right? Uh, it would make church much more cozy, and uh, and it would change the dynamics of, of our worship some, right? Well, when you take out the Jewish converts and you leave, you're left with only Gentile converts. It changed dramatically the dynamics, especially since uh, what was what was removed was the Jewish heritage of Christianity. And honestly, as the Jews were leaving town, the Gentiles were going, yes, <laughs> okay, enough of this Jewish law stuff, right? And they, they got the chance to shape the church in a direction that was much more uh, free from, from uh, Jewish influence. Well, uh, Nero changed his mind a couple years later, all the Jews come back, and there was some tension and definitely some division in Rome. And a lot of the division centered around the very things that Paul's talking about here. Uh, What is the meaning of the gospel specifically for the Jews? And how is it different as it applies to Gentiles? And uh, this was a lot of debate that Paul wrestled with, not just in Rome, but everywhere he went, as the Jews argued that Christians should come into relationship with God through Judaism, through the law, right? And so... uh, Paul wrestles with this in many places, and in here uh, he wrestles with it in a, in a rather unique light in this, and that the, the reality was that very few Jewish people had actually come to faith in Christ. As time unfolded and as the gospel spread, it became very clear and apparent that in the end, most Jewish people were rejecting the, the message of the good news. And so Paul starts off this chapter by saying, you know, has God's promise to Israel failed? It's clear that Israel has rejected, finally and permanently, for them, the gospel. And so he says, and we talked about this last week, does that mean God's promise or God's word has failed? And in verses 6 through 13, he wrestles with this. 
Did God fail Israel because he didn't save them all? And Paul's basic argument is this. He says, well, no, because God never intended to. Okay, God never promised that he would save every person just because they were born a descendant of Abraham. And he uses the examples of Isaac and Ishmael and Esau and Jacob to, to make his point. He says, not all of Abraham's descendants became children of the promise. So why would we expect now that just because a person's born an Israelite, that they would automatically be a child of the promise? And he said, there's, the, there's political Israel, which is all the descendants, but out of that, God is selecting, he is choosing a group who are the spiritual Israel, those whom he's choosing to save through the message of the gospel. Right? And so, so he makes that claim that... Um, you know, God never said or promised that he would save all Israel. Well, then uh, he comes to our passage today, verse 14, and he says this. He says, what, what should we say about this then? Is there injustice on God's part? Right? Is God unjust? He says, by no means. For he says to Moses, I, have, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And we'll read, we'll read on later, but uh, we'll stop there. Um, he said, is it unfair that God has done this? Is God being unjust in, in that he chooses some Israel and not all? Um, now, to, to get the, uh, the whole picture of this, uh, and, we gotta, and this is where we've got to understand the context, okay? Paul is talking here about the Jews. He's talking about Israel, right? And he's saying, is it fair that God has not chosen all Jews, right? Now, the Israelite audience, the people in Rome who were Jewish Christians who would have been, or not Jewish, uh, not Christians, but Jews, who would have been listening to this message, they would have never dreamed it'd be a problem that God did not choose not Israel, okay? Because that's not even in the question, right? In fact, when you look back in the Gospels as Jesus dealt with the Jews, uh, remember the story of the prodigal son? What, what was behind that? Well, the Pharisees, the good Jews, were very upset that, God, that Jesus was spending time with bad Jews. Right? Now, now, no Jewish, no good Jew would, would argue that God should save bad Jews. Right? Of course you don't save bad Jews. They deserve it, right? Uh, you saved the good Jews. And that's what they, that was their criticism of Jesus. And why he tells the story, story of the prodigal son. He says, you know, what do you have, what business do you have hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, right? Obviously, they're disqualified. But what we're talking about is the rest of us good people, right? But what, 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 what Paul just argued is that God does not base his decision, his choice, on how good or bad we are, Right? He says, uh, he said, and not only so, in verses 10 and 11, not only so, but, God, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, uh, though they were not yet born, in order, um, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Right? So what Paul's talking about here is, is, is God's right to choose out of Israel those whom he would save, not based on if they were good or not good. Right? And some people had a real problem with this. Right? 
But, but again, understand the context. They would never say, well, God should be saving all Jews. What they're arguing is God should be saving all the good Jews. And of course he should not save all the bad Jews. And what about the Gentiles? <laughs> That's a joke. What about the Gentiles? Right? Well, of course God's not going to save them. Right? God never said he would do that. Right? Let me go back to the story of Jonah. Right? What's the whole story of Jonah about? Jonah runs away from God. God sends him to Nineveh. Is Nineveh a, a, a Jewish city? No, it is as pagan as Gentile as it gets, right? Why does Jonah run away? Because he doesn't want to be a missionary? Because he doesn't want to be a prophet? No. He runs away from God because, he says, if I go to the Ninevites and I preach to them, you, God, are going to be nice to them. You are going to show mercy to those pagans. And I don't like that, right? What business do you have showing mercy to non-Jews? Right? So the Jews, would have, it would have been laughable to them, this idea that God should save Gentiles. Right? So, so you've got to keep that in context in mind when we, when we look at what, what Paul is saying here. Uh, he's asking the question, or the, this, uh, this hypothetical opponent is asking the question, is it fair for God to choose? But, but no. Okay, no, one more time. Just make it clear. He's not saying, is it right for God to choose not choose everybody. He's saying, is it right for God not to choose good Jews? That's what he's saying, right? And so Paul gives his reply this way. He says, um, and, and he uses two examples of Moses and Pharaoh, right? And his answer is simply this. He says, God says to Moses, first of all, and then in verse 17, he says, and God says to Pharaoh. So he parallels these two stories. One about Moses, one about Pharaoh. And he does it to highlight why it's fair or right for God to choose the way he does, right? Now, of course, if you're, if you're a Jew listening to this, is Moses a good guy or a bad guy? He's a good guy, right? He's the good guy, right? He's like the hero of Israel. And he sweeps down, he confronts Pharaoh head on, um, takes on him, wins, rescues, delivers Israel out of the hands of Pharaoh. He's a good guy, right? So he quotes this verse out of, out of Exodus chapter 33, where God says to Moses, um, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Right? Now, that sounds good, and it sounds, uh, we, we could take that about a thousand different ways, but in essence what, what, what he says there is, God can, is free to be nice to whoever he wants. Right? Uh, and he says, I'm going to have compassion on who I want to. I'm going to be merciful on who I want to. But uh, every good Jewish person would have understood the whole story, the whole context of the story, and we, we need to go back and review that just a little bit. Why does God say that to Moses? What's the context? Does he say it because Moses and Israel are shining stars of goodness and well-behaved conduct? No. Where does this come in the story of Exodus? Well, it comes right after Israel had sinned uh, by, by making the golden calf and worshiping it, right? Moses comes down off the mountain after getting the Ten Commandments, and here is Israel going full-on pagan, right? They are worshiping this idol. They're having a party. They're having orgies. They're drunk. They're, they're doing everything you're not supposed to do, right? And and Moses gets angry and he throws down and breaks the Ten Commandments. Probably not a good idea. Uh, 
He's angry. God's angry. God says, I'm going to wipe them out. And, it, and, it, and Moses, in a, in a better moment of sanity, says, you know, God, I'm thinking that's not such a good idea. He intercedes for Israel. He pleads God's mercy, right? So God relents. He does not destroy them. But finally, in chapter 33, God says to Moses, okay, it's time to leave this place and go up to the, the promised land. I'm sending you on your way. Uh, I'm not going with you. He says, I cannot go with these people. If I go with them, I will destroy them. Right? Okay, so that's the status. That's the context of this verse. And, and Moses says to God, God, if you don't go with us, we cannot go from here. In fact, Moses plants his feet and he says, I will not go unless you promise to go with us. Because if you don't go with us, what will, and these are his words, he says, what will distinguish us from other nations? How will we be any different? We'll be just like all the other nations. What distinguishes us is your presence. And so God agrees and he says to Moses, I will go with you. I will, my presence will go with you. That is God's grace, right? It was his pure grace. He says, I will, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion. Israel, you don't deserve this. There's nothing about Israel that compels me to go with you. In fact, it's my better judgment not to. But I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so Moses asked for a sign. He wants convincing proof. He says, God, okay, you know, you've made this promise. I'm not 100% convinced yet. So will you permit your glory, will you reveal your glory to me as a sign, as a witness of this promise? And God says, I will do it. And so he goes up on the mountain and his glory passes before him and he says, I will reveal my name to you, my character. And this is how I define and describe my character. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, what God is saying is, Israel, you don't deserve this. But I am a, I am a merciful God and out of my own merciful, compassionate character, I choose to display it to you and to show kindness to you in spite of what you are. Right? That's the context. And so he says, it does not depend on human will or exertion, effort, but it all depends on God who is merciful. It comes down to it, it is God's merciful character that he chose Israel and went with them. Okay, now the other side. The other example he uses is Pharaoh. Now is Pharaoh the good guy or the bad guy? He's the bad guy. He is the bad guy, right? He is the mean bully who is oppressing Israel, who is forcing the murder of every one of their infant male children. He is a bad guy, right? Uh, he is a murderer. By the way, uh, out of Moses and Pharaoh, which one was not a murderer? <laughs> right? They're both murderers, right? They're really not that different, right? But God chose Moses for a good purpose, and he showed his mercy. But he did not choose Pharaoh to that end. And it says... Uh, Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. 
right? It says he hardened Pharaoh. He's the bad guy. And um, let's think a little bit about his hardening. And again, we've got to know the context of the story. If we take it just out of its context, we may get wrong ideas. And oftentimes people do this with this, this doctrine, this truth. Okay, They get this picture that we, as people, are start out perfectly neutral, innocent, helpless victims, right? And we're going down the path of innocence and, and helplessness, and God comes to a, uh, the sorting place where he says, you, you're going to be a bad person, you go that way. You, you're going to be a good person, you go that way, right? So you get this picture of Moses and Pharaoh, these two helpless, innocent, sweet, loving people going along, and God forces Moses to the side of goodness, and he forces Pharaoh to the side of badness. But that's not true, right? They both were going down the same path. But remember, they both were murderers. They both were bad people, right? There's nothing neutral about any of us. Romans 3 makes it very clear. We are all without God. We are all sinners. We have all rejected him. We are all, it says, murderers, right? So it's not starting in this neutral place where God divides good, innocent, neutral people between good and bad. He says that he hardens Pharaoh's heart. Well, what kind of guy was Pharaoh? He was already a creep and a jerk, right? He was killing brand new babies because he didn't want more male children in Israel. He wanted to shrink the herd, so to speak, right? And so he was doing that. He was a bad person, right? But it says that God hardened his heart. Uh, Well, if we misunderstand this, we can get this kind of picture that God is up there arbitrarily zapping us with hard genes or hard something, character, personality, right? That's not what it... it, 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 Go back to the story. How did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, you go back, and how many plagues were there in Egypt? Ten, right? Ten plagues, right? Um, Why did God do it this way? Okay. Now, Clint Eastwood has a much better plan. You know, if Clint Eastwood were Moses, he would walk in and he would say to Moses... He lift up his rod, pointed at Moses, and say, "Go ahead, make my day, right? Let my people go." Pharaoh says, "I'm not letting your people go." <laughs> Let's go with a firebolt that just melts and incinerates Pharaoh into a pile of ashes. And he says, "Okay, who's in charge now, right?" And he volunteers. We're leaving. Yeah, sure, go. It's all yours, man. We're not standing in your way. Okay, that's not how God did it, right? He starts with the rod, and he turns it into a snake, right? And quite honestly, Pharaoh was not at all impressed, because his magicians could do the same thing, right? See, God starts with the tiniest little thing, and it's kind of the frog in the kettle syndrome, you know? He drops Pharaoh into this large vat of boiling water, but it's not boiling yet, it's cool. And he slowly turns up the heat, notch by notch by notch. Each plague, just a little worse, just a little worse, right? What is God doing to Pharaoh? Well, he is hardening his heart, right? Not inwardly, not because he zapped him with some character defect, but God knows how to play people. And he knew how to play Pharaoh. He knew how to take his already stubborn, hard-hearted will and just grind it into you know, hardened steel, step by step by step, right? He hardened Pharaoh's heart. Was it hard? Could you and I have done the same thing? You and I could have, right? Any good psychologist could have worked Pharaoh over like that and brought out the stubbornness that was already there, right? 
Um, well, why did God do it? Well, God says he does it to show his power and to make his name great throughout the whole earth, right? God could have done it differently. Uh, and, and at the same time, he could have melted Pharaoh into a kitten. You know, if God was to o- overcome his own personality and to turn Pharaoh into a puppet, he could have turned him into some kind of Santa Claus, some jolly elf, and Moses came in. He says, oh, sure, you know, no problem. I just love you guys, you know, whatever you want. Right? right? But God's agenda or purpose was not that. God's agenda or purpose was to make his name great, to show his power and his glory, to show that the group most powerful nation in the world was nothing before the sovereign almighty God. And so when Israel left Egypt... They left with this awe as God's chosen people and all the people in all nations that said, says we're in awe of the Israelites because of what God had done. God was making his name great, which in, its, which in itself was an act of mercy. Right? God was proclaiming himself to the world on an ever-growing scale. Right? So that's, that's what Paul says. Paul says, God chooses some, he hardens some. Right? And he, helped, he wants them to, under, to know the context of that. Right? And he does it, but why does he, does it? why does he does it? Why does he do it? Why does he do it? Right? And here's the punchline of the whole thing. Punchline, verse, verses 23 through 29. Why is God doing this? Now, we oftentimes misunderstand this doctrine because we get the sense that God chooses in order to shrink or diminish his mercy. Right? That God is not interested in saving more people. He's only interested in saving less. And that his choosing is somehow cruel and hard because he is pulling back in stingily his goodness and mercy. But notice what it says in verse 22. It says, what, uh, what, what if God does this? In other words, what of it? What of it if God acts this way? If God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, like he did with Pharaoh, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So he put up with Pharaoh, he dealt with Pharaoh as a stubborn, hard-hearted vessel, suited and fit for destruction. Why does he do it? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Okay, why did God do that? Why did God tr- deal that way with Pharaoh? Well, it was in order to show the riches of his glory to objects of his grace. Right? He wanted Israel to understand how gracious and glorious God was. Okay, that is his mercy. Right? All right? And then he goes on. He says, and here's the, here's the punchline of all, which would have been a zinger for the Jews listening to this. Okay, They're, they're kind of tracking with us a little bit, right? They're saying, okay, maybe, yeah, I can see this, you know. Until he gets to verse 24. Okay, God, God has done this uh, to show his mercy, to uh, his, his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Who are these vessels? Even us whom he called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. <laughs> Okay, if you're the Jews listening to this letter, at this point you just fall off your chair, right? You just go into coronary arrest. Okay, what? 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 For the Gentiles, right? Notice what, and this is what Paul's argument is. Let me summarize it. 
He's saying, just like God hardened Pharaoh in order to make his grace and his mercy more evident and significant for all of Israel, in the same way in this present time, God has hardened Israel in order to make the riches of his glory more evident and accessible to those of us who he has called, even the nations, literally, the nations. Right? So the principle is this in this passage. God's choosing is not in order to diminish or hold back his grace. It is to extend and expand his mercy to ever greater fields of, of reach, of extent. Right? That's why God chooses. That's why God hardens. Right? In the hardening of, of Israel, and because they rejected the good news, God could now open up his mercy to the nations. Right? And he could extend his mercy even farther and farther and farther. Right? That's what he's saying here. Right? So when we, when we think about when we read through this passage, when we, when we wrestle with these issues of God's choosing, his election, his hardening some, and his choosing others, you've got to always keep it in that context. The God's agenda, God's ultimate and agenda and purpose in all this is not because he is cheap and chintzy and greedy and because he's reluctant to share his mercy. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Right? It is because he is incredibly generous and he wants his mercy to be expressed in ever greater circles of reach and, and, and expanse. Right? He sees this as an opportunity for his mercy to go into greater and greater territories right? until this day where God you know, sees a Thailand and a Burma and a China and a Vietnam and a Laos. He sees these countries. God's choosing is that, that his mercy would extend to these places, right? that the work of Christ would have result and effect and fruit in ever-growing circles. Right? Uh, that's what he's saying here. And he, he, he finishes it with, a, quote, with a, a bunch of quotes from the Old Testament in verses 25 through 29. He, he pulls out his biblical support. He says, listen to what the Old Testament says. Uh, in Hosea it says, those who are not my people, the, the Gentiles, I will call my people. And her who was not my beloved, I will call my beloved. He says, look, this has been God's plan and program all along. That God would would extend, would it be expanding outward his grace? And in the very place where it said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Right? Not all of them. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And again, Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left uh, left us offspring, we would have been wiped out completely like Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? So, God, so Paul says, look, this has been God's plan all along, that he would not save all Israel. But in, in not saving all of Israel, it would be to the effect and benefit of his mercy going out to those who were not his beloved, those who were not named by him. Right? Uh, and that's in short what, what Paul says in this passage. Um, let me go back and just uh, real quickly talk about what it means for us in our modern-day world, right? The, the fact and the reality is, and, and Paul is super clear on this, God chooses people to be saved, right? 
And uh, in verse 19, uh, uh, Paul's uh, opposition says this. Okay, Paul has this imaginary counterpart. It says, you will say to me then, um, why does God still find fault? Why does God still blame us in all this? For who can resist his will? Right? Um, and really the question that, 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 the way we would cast the question is this. We would say, God, this isn't fair. Right? This does not sound fair. Right? The fact that you would choose some and not all seems not fair. It seems unjust. And honestly, I'll be, I'll be very honest, I feel that way sometimes, right? Honestly, if I were God, I'd save everybody, right? It's a good thing I'm not God. Uh, but I feel like that would be more just than fair, right? And certainly, we live in a time and an age in a world where society says, God, that is not fair. If you were truly a loving and good God, you would save everybody, so how do we answer that? Well, Paul answers that in this passage in a couple of clear ways. Uh, and the, the first response I would have uh, is to ask this question. Is our theology, our understanding of who God is and what the Bible teaches, is it God-centered or man-centered? Right? Uh, as we weigh out on the scales, the degree of our man-centered theology or God-centered theology is going to hugely affect how we see this. Right? And the reality is, a lot of us have a very man-centered theology. It doesn't mean that what we believe is not true. You know, we believe Jesus died for me. We believe Jesus died to take care of my sins and to give me a better life so I could be happy. Right? Now, Jesus did all that. Uh, but when I put myself at the center of it, it kind of twists it in a dangerous way. Right? And I become the focus of everything. And God did this all this purely for my benefit? Uh, or is our theology more God-centered? A God-centered, a God-centered theology would look more like this. Um, that uh, God, God, in order to show his great love and kindness, sent his own son to become like us so that God could reconcile the world to himself through Jesus. Okay, now which of those sounds more like scripture? <laughs> you know, uh, and one of the problems with this, and this is a great test, you, know, you really are bugged a lot by this, it's a, good, it's a good indicator that your theology may be a lot more man-centered than you think. Right? If you think, what right does God have to choose people? Right? Well, if God is God, sovereign, center of the universe, creator of all things, uh, who, to whom belongs all glory, well, he can do whatever he wants, right? Uh, if, on the other hand, I'm the center of the universe and it all ought to fit my categories, right, then you have a problem with this. But this is how Paul deals with it, and this is how he looks at a very God-centered theology. First of all, as we weigh, as we weigh this out, is God being fair, is God being just? We have to ask the question, what scales are we weighing it on? Right? How are we weighing out? How are we going to measure what is fair? Right? Now, it seems like an easy enough question. What is fair? What is just? Right? Uh, but here again, like I talked a little bit last week about our own culture, believe it or not, our own uh, culture is not actually as just and fair as we would imagine. 
Okay, and here's here's what I mean by that. Where does our system, our ethics, come from? Okay, we would all love to say the Bible and the Ten Commandments, right? But actually, culturally, not not me, but you personally, but culturally, if you're in a, from a Western culture, your idea of justice and fairness has been shaped very much by uh, the Enlightenment thinking of, especially John Locke. All right, uh, before John Locke. Uh, all ethics were, were determined to be a matter of God telling us what was right and wrong, right? But John Locke, along with other Enlightenment thinkers, challenged that notion. And they said, no, that's not true. That, in fact, there is a natural law. And by natural law, he meant that the, the universe itself, just like the laws of gravity and laws of physics, there are laws of morality and ethics that are evident within the natural order of things. And he went back primarily to human nature as the basis of natural law. And he said people are ultimately good and that there are natural laws that are universal and unchanging about how human beings interact. And that should be the basis of justice and fairness. Uh, Now, if you think this through and you know anything about sin nature, you should be just going, oh, buddy, hang on a minute, all right? Hold on a minute, because... The natural order of how human beings treat each other is not that great, right? Sinful human beings who are self-centered tend to harm each other a lot, right? Well, he didn't see that view of human nature, and he saw human interaction um, much differently. Uh, and he said that, that, that this should be the basis for morals or ethics. In other words, what he's saying here is the way we normally treat each other should be the basis for what's just and right, right? Now, he lived in a day when very few people had equal opportunities. And some of what he said actually is very true and, and very right. And he lived in a day where very few people could be landowners. Uh, and he said this was against the law of nature. And he said this, this was contradictory to what the way things should be. And in this, I think he was probably right. Uh, and he argued that people should have equal opportunity to all that the world has to offer and so we should have access to land and rights. And if we're willing to work hard, we should be able to get our own little two acres and grow a little garden and reap the benefits of our little garden for ourselves, right? And, uh, and so it started this movement that, that became democracy, that became freedom, that became the right to own land and property and pursue happiness, right? All relatively good things. Uh, fast forward to the year 2012, right? What does this look like? Well, what it looks like is this. All people have equal rights to everything, right? Regardless of what I do to get it, right? If somebody else has more money than I do, especially if it's a lot more money, I have a right to their wealth, right? Bill Gates has, has too much money. I have a right to his money, right? Because we all have equal opportunity regardless, right? So I don't have to work for it. I don't have to do anything. He should just give it to me, Right? Even though he worked very hard for his money, that doesn't matter. We all have equal access, equal right to share the world's wealth, right? And that really is kind of the modern version of all this. And so now justice gets weighed and measured on that scale. Everybody has equal right to every good thing. And if I in any way withhold good from anybody, I am being unjust, right? The fact that he didn't work for it, the fact that he didn't apply himself, the fact maybe even the fact that they stole it, right, doesn't matter. Because everybody should have a right to equal opportunity. Because after all, we're all basically good people. 
right? And that gets worked out in, in a lot of different ways in our society, right? Uh, and that's a very simplistic version of it, okay? I'll, I'll confess that. Um, but, but we have to understand that that is what lies behind our, our accusation that God is not just, right? Because by our definition of fairness, everybody must have equal access to all of God's glory because we deserve it. Is that true? Well, God is just. Well, thankfully, God is not as just as he could be because what do we really actually deserve? What do we deserve? Death and judgment. We do not deserve anything from God except for his wrath and judgment. It is his mercy. It is his incredible kindness that he does not give us what we deserve. Right? In that sense, God is not just because he's overly kind already. Right? He is merciful and gracious. And, and as I, I believe Paul's saying here, he is, he is trying. He is on a mission to expand and extend that mercy greater and farther. Right? But is God obligated to give equally to all people. No, no. So then what is the basis of justice or fairness? Well, real quick, we don't have time to go into this, but basically the only standard of justice, the only standard of what fair, what is fair, must come from the very character and nature of God. Okay? God himself, in what he is in his being, defines what's good and right and fair. And that's why he says... This great quote to Moses. He said, I will reveal my name to you. I will show to you my character. And my character is this. I am a God of mercy and compassion. That is what I am. Right? And so I act on the basis of my own being, my own character. Okay? I'm not following an outside code or law. I'm not obligated to do what somebody tells me to do. I am only obligated by my own character and inward being, the essence of who I am. And that is how I act and work in the universe. Right? So the, the measure that we must judge God by and the measure that God judges himself by is his own character. So he says in verse 16, it does not depend, it's not a matter of man's will or man's effort. It is a matter of what? God's merciful character. Right? Is God fair in distributing mercy? Well, based on his own character, he is fair. Right? He will be judged and evaluated. We must judge and evaluate God on the basis of his character. And he is incredibly compassionate and merciful. Right? Um, we'll stop there. There's two other good reasons. We don't, we don't have time to do them this morning. Uh, but let me just close with this thought. Um, as we turn to communion as we turn to remembering, remembering and celebrating what God did for us. Uh, he didn't have to do it, right? God would have been perfectly just in every respect to say, humankind, you have sinned, you have rebelled against me, you have been stubborn and hard-hearted against me from the beginning, and I would be right to, to harden you further, to play you like I played Pharaoh, to display my power and make my name great as a sovereign, holy, just God. But God in his own character, who was not only holy and just, but merciful and compassionate, looked upon us and said, and yet, I have a heart to save some. I have a heart 
to send my own son to die, to make right those who are not right, not by their own means, but purely by my grace and compassion. Right? And out of the measure of my own compassion, I'm going to do that. And it started with Abraham. God tried with Israel, who proved to be incredibly stubborn and hard-hearted. And in the end, rejected God's gift of good news. But in all that, God said, just as he did with Pharaoh, it did not contradict my purpose. In fact, it fit perfectly in my purpose because my purpose is to send mercy out even farther to the nations. Right? And it's because of the hardness of Israel that you and I now are recipients of God's grace. Let's pray. Father, these are indeed very difficult truths that, um, that honestly are beyond us. And Lord, if we think we can understand or figure these things out, we're just kidding ourselves because it really is um, infinitely beyond us. Uh, you are a God who, whose ways and thoughts are far beyond ours. But Lord, we are confident in one thing, that in your being and character, you are a good and righteous God who is merciful and compassionate. And you sent your own son as the perfect sacrifice for sin. And you will not waste that gift. You and all the generosity of your heart will seek to expand and extend your mercy as far as possible to see as many as possible come into right relationship with you. And Lord, we stand just in awe of knowing the reality that we have been chosen by you. And by your power and your grace, you have brought us into relationship with yourself um, by your own doing, not by our will or our effort, but by your great mercy. So we want to celebrate that now as we remember the, uh, the life of Christ given up for us on the cross. And we just pray Lord you help us to make this a time of genuine worship as we celebrate you in Jesus name amen you've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai Thailand for more information please view our website at www.ccfth.org